Thanks, Michael. Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Andrews. I'm Rowan, uh, again, one of the pastors here. And tonight we get to the last section in the book of Ephesians. We get to hear what Paul has to say to this church as he writes from jail to them and to think about what that means for the way we go out into the world around us. So why don't we now stop and pray and ask that God by His Spirit would help us to understand this and to apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come here tonight, we long to have your word come alive in our lives. We long to see the world as you see it. And we want to ask you this evening that by your spirit and through your word, you'd show us where we don't see the world through your eyes. And you'd help us to readjust and to be sent out from here changed, that we might know you better and that we might live for you in a world around us in a way that brings you glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had one of those situations where you just get blindsided in life? You don't notice something coming and it kind of just hits you like a train and then you kind of stumble through the rest of the time. It might have been an exam result, a uni mark, and you're like, what? I didn't see that fail coming. I've been doing all my work. I thought I was going to pass. (laughs) Why didn't any of you laugh? Maybe you've never had that happen. I don't know. I've had that. But one time in particular, I can remember being blindsided. Uh, it's a few years ago, Sarah and I um, had been married for a fair while, um, had our four kids, and Sarah started getting headaches. I'm like, what are, what are these headaches about? She went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, yeah, tried a few things, did some like caudal steroid things to try and see if it sorted itself out. It was some sort of sinus problem, they thought. And um, After about 18 months, we couldn't work out what the issue was, and I'm kind of there sometimes, but not other times. And so uh, we kind of went back to the doctor and said, look, we're still not sure, is it worth getting a, a CAT scan? Uh, and so they sent us off to get uh, a scan, and, and we went. Now, growing up, I'd been the one in our family that had issues with my head. If I ever thought there'd be something wrong with, with any of our heads, Sarah's or mine, I thought it would be mine. Um, I, I had brain surgery when I was uh, 15. They had to put a brain in. I was born without one. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, you laugh because you think that's true, right? Anyway. Um, and no, no, but seriously, there was a small kind of thing I needed to clear in my brain. I've still got like a, a five or six centimeter silicon tube that goes under the skin in the center of my brain. If you, did a, if you did a scan of the side of my head, you'd be like, whoa, there's a nail in his head. There's not. But if anyone was going to have issues in our family with their heads, I thought it's not going to be Sarah. It's definitely going to be me. So I'm sitting there, Sarah's in, getting the, the CAT scan done. And then um, a doctor from our church walked down. He was, he was a radiologist, uh, one of the doctors that, that reads scans. And he said, oh, I saw Sarah's name on, so I just thought I'd come down and say hi and make sure everything was all right. And I was like, oh, so great to see you. He went in uh, and then he came out. He sat down next to me and he said, look, I'm just going to be straight with you. There's a five centimeter tumor in the center of Sarah's brain. And actually, we're going to need to remove it. <laughs> I wasn't ready for it at all. I felt completely knocked. Sarah didn't even know this information yet. She then came out of the scan uh, and saw the doctor sitting next to me and was like, oh, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I've read the scan. Then she looked at, at my face. I'm trying to hold it together, but I couldn't. She saw that there was something seriously going on and she's like, what, what's wrong? And he explained what happened and it knocked us for six. It knocked me for six because I wasn't aware of a reality that was happening just under the surface of my wife's skin. Now they're able to operate, thankfully, through the nose and be able to remove the tumor that was in there. Amazing stuff. But it really made me think, wow, life is so fragile. I am so fragile. There are times in life when we get knocked for six because we're not prepared. We're not aware of the dire situation that's in front of us or that's going on around us. When it comes to our general lives, our day-to-day, for many of us, we, we feel pretty stable. Sure, there's the ups and downs of life. We have a good day. We have a hard day. 
No, but it's not like we're at war or anything. It's like there's planes flying overhead and there's sort of some amazing battle going on. But as we get to this last section in Ephesians, Paul lets us know something that if we don't understand, if we do not hear, it will blindside our faith and lead each and every one of us into the open gates of hell. It's this. We are at war. If you're taking notes tonight, there's really two points. Number one, we're at war. Number two, on the other side of the page, know your weapons. That's where we're heading. But the reality that Paul starts out with in this passage is that we are at war. Now, although there's no tanks kind of going down the streets of Auckland, no armies marching through our cities, no fighter jets circling above, and the church that we're part of, we don't really have that many enemies. I mean, was anyone worried about getting taken out by a sniper on their way here to church tonight? My hunch is no. And if you work, let's chat. (laughs) But right now, at this very moment, there is someone doing everything in their power to take you and me down. And for the majority of us, we're totally oblivious to what's going on. Isn't that a scary situation to be in? If that is true, isn't that a, a scary place to be? Paul starts in verse 12 telling us that our struggle in this world is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. That's what's going on. Our biggest struggles in life usually come up as issues either between us or within us. Between us, between relationships with others, friends, family, government, we don't like them, there's these issues that are there. Or issues within us, our health and well-being, our bodies fail, our health deteriorates. But Paul tells us those things have nothing on the real struggle we face. His name is Satan, the devil. And he's not alone. He has his cronies in the heavenly realms and they're kind of with him in, in the rulers and the authorities and they are set out to take you and me down. Now you hear that and you might be thinking, ooh, is the Bible again. It's just trying to scare me with the old boogeyman tactics. You know, don't go out of your room at night because the boogeyman will get you. That's how your parents got you to stay in your room. Maybe the Bible's just doing that now. It's saying something scary about Satan being around. It's just a method of control. Or perhaps you're not that far down the line. You believe in a spiritual realm and Satan, but you know, you just put it down to something that you believe in and don't really take much notice of. You just move on with your life day in and day out. It struck me as I was thinking through the passage this week that we spend a lot of our time thinking about security and safety. We lock our houses so burglars don't come in. I hope you locked your house. If you didn't, I'm sorry for the distraction for the next five minutes as you kind of go over. Did I lock the front door? But you do that because... You're worried someone will come in or or we we ensure our possessions, our car, our laptop, the things that are valuable to us. So some crazies don't take them away and we're left without our assets. But when was the last time you gave a thought to Satan's schemes and how you might mitigate against them? Have you thought about it today? This week? (laughs) This year? When we think of something satanic, we usually think of all the crazy stuff, the wackos, right? The, the crazies that have these Ouija boards and seances and the weird and wacko people that kind of do crazy potions and they kind of expect some spiritual force outside of us to kind of step in and give us visions of crazy dragons. And we kind of think of all this stuff and we're like, man, that stuff is, is not me. I'm not really part of that. 
But Paul already told us in Ephesians 1 how pervasive Satan and his powers are. Have a look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to, you ready? The ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Paul told us in the letter so far that, that Satan is the, is the ruler of the power of the air. He is now at work in those who have rejected Jesus. He is the one controlling the world around us. He's pulling the strings. He's calling the shots. He's not kind of behind every actual thing and like, you know, did that fall down because Satan did it to me? But he also is. He's trying to do every possible thing he can to pull you away from God. But at the cross, Paul tells us in Romans 3, something happened. Look at, uh, not Romans 3, but Ephesians 3.10. God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens, according to God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and he gathered his people together as we come to church. We show the rulers and authorities in in the heavenly realms, all of those that are around, that God has won as we gather together. There's a great victory that's happened. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. The problem is what Satan wants us to think is that's the end of the story. We could be tempted to think that just because Satan's been defeated at the cross, that he's lost all his power now. Why don't you come with me to the book of Revelation? We're going to look at Revelation in a couple of weeks. We're going to be working through the whole book uh, for the next term. So get ready to think about, was John on LSD or something as he wrote this book? And what's kind of happening as we go through it? But come to Revelation 12 and have a look with me at what has gone on. Revelation 12 verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon is Satan here. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, was thrown to earth. And his angels with him. Did you hear that? He got thrown to earth. This is now Satan's place. The battle's been won in the heavenly realms, but now he is here. Look at verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who'd given birth to the male child. There's a number of things going on here, isn't there? But Satan gets thrown to earth. He knows his time is short. He knows Jesus is one at the cross, that that has happened. And so he's doing everything he can to persecute the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Now, in the context of Revelation, we don't have time to talk about it now. That is really the the Christian community, those on earth who trust in Jesus. What Paul and John are saying is that Satan, though he was defeated at the cross, has been allowed only a short time to do his work. He knows he's been beaten, so he's fuming. He's angry. He wants to make a massive mess of the plans of God before his time runs out and pull you and me away from knowing him. Now you need to know, if you're here tonight and not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here checking out the things of God and what God's word says. But for you tonight, there's both good news and bad news. If you don't yet follow Jesus, 
The good news is that Satan is not concerned about you at all. You're not even on his radar. He doesn't really mind. He's happy just to let you go, not trusting in Jesus where you are. And you might think, that's great. That's good. But the bad news is, that's because he already has you. He's the ruler of the air who is controlling what's going on. Now, I know that sounds pretty full on. But Paul's already said that Satan is the spirit working in the disobedient. Satan has you exactly where he wants you, looking down the barrel of hell and happy with it. I want to encourage you tonight. I want to plead with you. Hear what God is saying. Come and look at the forgiveness that is on offer, at the King Jesus that we're going to meet in a moment and what he is like. So it doesn't have to be that way. Death, judgment and hell don't need to be your end. Jesus has died in your place and given you the solution to death. I want to encourage you tonight, come to Him. But if you do that, or if you already have done that, this means that you are Satan's prime target. With a limited time and in a fit of rage, Satan's target is anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Towards the end of World War II, the Allied forces had already cleaned out most of North Africa. They'd landed in the boot of Italy, and they were gently kind of pushing up. Within one month, the Allied forces landed their troops on the beaches of Normandy. They landed 1.1 million troops, 200,000 vehicles, 750,000 tons of stores on the beaches of Normandy. At that moment... It was plain to everyone who could see anything that the war in Europe was over. The Germans, they didn't have any troops anymore. Too many had died. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have much energy. There was simply no way that they were going to win. And the the Allied forces kind of got a little bit cocky, like, look at us, look at our strength. And they stood around. But what did Hitler do? Did he give up? Did he go, oh, I'm sorry, everyone. Bit of a mistake there. Shouldn't, shouldn't have attacked you all. Just want to say sorry. We'll pull back and surrender. Oopsies. D- is that what happened? No way. What came next was what is called the Battle of the Bulge, which has been called the largest and bloodiest single battle fought by the United States in World War II and the third deadliest campaign in American history. Hitler, knowing he had limited time, knowing the the war was pretty much over, he went all out. He tried for one last push and he caught all the Allied um, forces by surprise, thinking the war was over. And it was bloody and so many people died. The third biggest death. The war was already over. But Hitler was still running. Friends, the battle with Satan has been won. But the war is not yet over. Satan is running around, spewing out lies, trying now to be the bloodiest battle the world has ever seen, taking as many people as he can with him to hell. But he doesn't do it with a massive artillery. He doesn't do it with big signs and throwing people against the wall and demon possession and all that kind of crazy stuff. No, he's moved on. He has stealth technology. He does it in ways that we don't even realize. He's been... The father of lies from the beginning, God's word tells us. Half-truths have been what he's been speaking out that that, that take our focus off what God has said and done. He started that way in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you'll die? (laughs) You won't surely die. And people rejected the true and living God. He causes us to doubt God, to doubt 
God's good plans. And over the last few weeks, we've been hearing in Ephesians the areas that we need to get right as we live out this reality of who we are as God's people. Areas in marriage. That's why Paul's outlined how to live in God's world, in marriage, God's way. In the family, why fathers need to be leading and teaching their children. In the world and in the workplace. I mean, how many of us, after being so captured by what Jesus has done, go back and live for our career? Go back and think about family and put family in the center of our world. These things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But so often they can take up the lion's share of our lives and eclipse the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. Rather than seeing these things as good gifts of God, we end up worshiping our job and our career, chasing that bigger pay packet, the allure of freedom. Church community takes second or third place to family and career. We find ourselves too busy to read the Word of God, too busy to teach any kids we might have, too busy to encourage one another, all the more as we see the day approaching. And Satan sits back and laughs. He rubs his hands together as each and every one of us, by our own desire, inch by inch, walk away from the Savior who died for us. By our own desires and satisfaction. He doesn't need to do anything massively obvious. He's not going to throw you across the room. He just wants you to lift up that anchor a little and drift further and further out to sea, further and further away from God's good provision and into the gates of hell. You hear the lies all the time. You don't need to go to church every week. You can be a Christian and not be in church. You deserve a bit of me time. You know, those others at church, they don't really care about you anyway. You're always trying to have to bring up the conversations with others. And, you know, they don't call you through the week or text you. It's okay to have a rest. Just just chill out. Don't be so worried about them. Or, you know, don't worry about hanging out with Christian friends. That investor guy seems to be doing life pretty well. He's got life sorted. Why don't you jump in and invest all your time and energy in shares? It's going to take you to the next level. It's going to be awesome. Oh, it's having a bit of fun with that girl or guy that, you know, they're dating someone else, but a bit of flirting's all right. We're just friends. We'll just hang out together. doesn't matter if they don't know Jesus or not. You, you, you can just flirt to convert. That'll work really well, right? It's okay to pull back on your generosity. You know, you're a student. You're a new worker. You need to invest now. What you should do is try and build as much money as you can right now. Build up all your coffers. And then when you've got heaps of money, then you can be generous. Just don't do it now. Just pull back. Why not go on that holiday? Why not buy that new computer? Your money won't be tied up for too long. Then you can start giving again once, once you've got that in that place. You know those people that say to put Jesus at the center of your life? Be a bit radical to live in the world a bit differently. Jesus doesn't want you to be a weirdo. He came to love the world and be amongst it. And he doesn't want you to stand out and be ridiculed. The world should look at you and think, wow, they're really loving. Don't say those strong things. Don't have weird views on sex and marriage and relationships. Just fit in. Don't speak up. Let someone else talk about Jesus. It's it's okay. To Satan's schemes. Paul says, be prepared. Stand firm. Satan can't pull you away from Jesus. Satan can't possess the Christian in any way, shape or form. He can't make you walk away. 
He just suggests step by step a wonderful path that you long to take. And we take it. Paul tells us that we are at war. We're at war. And to miss that would be a grave mistake. So what do we do? What do we do as people who know we're at war? How do we remain in Jesus and make sure we remain to the end? Well, the answer to that is this. Giddy up. (laughs) Giddy up. That's what he says. We're at war, so know your weapons. Let's get on with it. Now, at first glance, we hear this kind of list of weapons. We're in the second point if you're following along in the non-existent outline. Paul says, know your weapons. And at first glance, they seem pretty normal military gear, right? There's a belt, armor, helmet, sandals, shield, sword, all the kind of normal kit you get when you sign up for Military 101. They look pretty normal. And you can come to this passage and just think, oh, Paul's using a metaphor here of things to help us to kind of think about how we act in the world and what kind of tools God's given us until we remember what God had said in the Old Testament, the way God has been shown to be. The Old Testament keeps pointing out God as a warrior. Uh, Listen to the way that Isaiah speaks about God. Isaiah 11, and these are God's words. But God will judge the poor righteously and execute justice from the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Or, Or take Isaiah 59 verse 15. The Lord saw that there was no justice, and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation. His own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Or Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. As you look through the Old Testament, so often you see that it is God who's described as a warrior. And the imagery Paul is using here is bringing all these first century Jews, at least, to recognize the God that they have met in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of the Old Testament history. And what he's saying to do here is to clothe yourself in the war clothing of God himself. We're at war. This is the battle. So dress like your king. That's what he's saying. Dress like your king. So first, verse 14. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Now at a metaphorical level, the kind of the belt held up the soldiers' clothes, their longer clothing, so they didn't trip over it when they were trying to fight and block and do all the blocky fight stuff that they need to do. It prepared them for rapid movement. It signified a a readiness for anything. But at the reality level, as they look to what God is like, the Messiah himself in Isaiah 11 was dressed with a belt of faithfulness, truthfulness, and utter reliability. Truthfulness is key. Do you know what the word Satan means? Literally, it's deceiver. Lies are the way of operating. And Paul is saying, God is saying, if you... Fight the battle in the world around you. Do not be like him. Do not let lies be the way that you work. Paul already told us that in chapter 4. Therefore, put away lying. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. If your words are sprinkled in half-truths, 
If you hold loosely to the truth, recognize this, that nothing delights Satan more than when Christians are loose with the truth. He loves it. You let a lie out and you kind of keep rolling with it. And then you lie to keep that going because you don't want to be shown to kind of have lied. And then someone says, do you really believe what the Bible says? And you try and tell the truth, but then they call out your lie and you're like, ah, how do I do this? You lie about your workplace. You lie to those that you love. You lie to the government. And Satan starts whispering, that's too far. You've lied now. God can't love you anymore. You're with me. Just keep going. Don't come out. Keep going the way you are. Don't confess it. Just no one will find out. Just smooth back to the way you were going. But Paul is saying, no. Put around your waist the belt of righteousness. Live rightly. Come clean. Confess when you lie. Satan loves to hold those lives over us and they become his bargaining chip. And as Satan gets stronger and stronger hold over us, we're tempted to push those lies back. But God's word is saying, confess it. Tell one another. If there are lies that you are holding on to tonight, if there are things that you've done or said that you haven't confessed, go to someone who's also a liar, who's also a sinner, who's come to Jesus and been forgiven and speak the truth. You'll be amazed at the freedom that it brings and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus who's paid the price for us all. Similarly, Paul tells us to be prepared for the war by clothing ourselves in righteousness like armor on your chest, verse 14. Again, it's, it's imagery from Isaiah, uh, picking up ideas from Ephesians 4 and 5. Look, 4.24, we're called to put on the new self, created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Or Ephesians 5.9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. So the emphasis here isn't the righteousness that God gives us that declares us right with God. It's not the blood-bought righteousness that Jesus has offered to us and declares us right before Him. No, it's the idea that because we've been declared right, because we are God's children, because God has called us out of the darkness and into His light, that we need to live with a family likeness. We need to look like our dad. We need to think like our dad. We need to act like our dad. And that's what the second half of Ephesians have been explaining to us the whole way through. The idea that you give your life to Jesus, then you can live however you want. It doesn't matter because Jesus has forgiven it. Now just do whatever you want. It's okay. It's all been forgiven. That lie comes straight from the lips of Satan. We need to live out the family likeness. Righteousness is right living. It's living God's way. And here Paul says it protects our vital organs like armor. Don't give in, he says, as you're living in the world around you, as you're living at the wall that we are in. Don't give up seeking to be made more and more like Jesus. Live rightly in the world around you. Do you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? He got sold by his brothers into slavery, uh, came along some Ishmaelites and off he went. And then a man by the name of Potiphar bought him. Potiphar was the, um, was the leader of the guard of, of Pharaoh of Egypt. 
And what happened was, as he brought Joseph in, things started to go well, and he started giving Joseph more and more privileges. And by long, Joseph was kind of running the house. Everything was at his disposal. This is like the two or three I see in all of Egypt at this point. And here he is. He'd been sold into slavery, but now he's in this amazing point. In this household, he's got what he wants. He's got all the opportunity that he has and all the freedom to do what he wants. And he's got everything his master could possibly have except one thing. Do you know what that was? Potiphar's wife. The one thing in that household he could not touch was Potiphar's wife. And that's exactly what Satan offered him. Come sleep with me, she said. Can you imagine the temptation? All this has already been given to me. I'm sure God wouldn't mind. I mean, she's offered it. It's not like I'm doing anything wrong here. When she seems willing and my master's already given me everything else already, I could just seek satisfaction here as well. Then I would have had everything my master has ever had. Can you imagine the temptation? What does Joseph do? He says no and runs. He consistently says no to every advance and then when she tries to throw herself at him, he does what hardly any guys ever do (laughs) and says, I'm out of here. Knowing that his reputation is going to come into disrepute, knowing she's going to say something that will probably end him up in prison again. And he's thinking, man, I could lose all this. Maybe I should have just done it. Maybe I should stay here. But he says no because he has belted onto his chest the armor of righteousness. He serves a God who is loved him and cared for him. And he will serve that God all the days of his life. The times that sin has knocked on the door of my life, the times I've followed the scent of self-satisfaction, each and every one of those is Satan trying to induce me to walk away from Jesus. Paul says we're at war. Put on the armor of righteousness, of right living. Live as God's child, no matter what. And let Satan's attempts to lure our hearts bounce off like armor. I wonder today, where is Satan doing that for you? Where has your guard dropped? your guard for right living, where is that kind of drop down and you're letting him lead you to walk away from God and towards Satan? Put on the righteousness of the armor of God. Thirdly, we're told in verse 15, to stand firm with your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Now, if I was going to go to war, I would not wear sandals. It's just not like they don't kind of run well. I'd be like steel cap boots, surely. Some kind of armored boots. But in, in the first century here, that's what the soldiers wore. They wore these sandals. They were high-tech shuri. I don't know if that's the right word. I just made it up then. Yeah, exactly. But the gospel, the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension has been mentioned so many times in this book. Remember, the gospel has brought peace. It's what peace between human beings and God. We're now at peace with God and we can call Him our Father and we have every spiritual blessing in Christ for those who trust in Him. And chapter 2 of Ephesians tells us that it's brought peace between Jew and Gentile. There's now no longer a dividing wall of hostility that Jew and Gentile can be part of God's family together. It brings peace between a man and his wife. 
between a master and his slave, between a father and his child, between races, between different generations. It brings us into one body where Christ is the head. The news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, if we trust it, brings peace. And Paul says, as we live in this world, in this war, we need to have feet fitted with the news of peace, with readiness to share that peace. And the language is drawn again from Isaiah 52. It looks forward to a time when a messenger would come. We heard it skipping over the mountains. Their feet running to the beat that brings the good news. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Isaiah said a messenger would come and that would be what he would say. And with the coming of Jesus, we can now say it. Jesus reigns. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. In the same way, the apostles, when they heard the news of, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and then his ascension, empowered by the Spirit, they, they sing out the news of Jesus all throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They go over the mountains and proclaim peace to all nations. Look at the way Paul describes it in the Colossian church. Colossians 1 verse 5, you've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It's bearing fruit. And growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. But what we miss is that readying ourselves to proclaim the gospel of peace is what prepares us for war. Readying ourselves to proclaim the gospel of peace is what prepares the believer for war. Again, Revelation 12 provides remarkable analogy. We're told in that section that Satan is fighting against the church, against the woman and her offspring, enraged against them. And we're told that they managed to overcome Satan in Revelation 12. And there's three particular emphases on that overcoming. Have a look. Revelation 12, 11. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. The blood of the Lamb is the content of the gospel. That's how the church wins the battle, by holding out the news of what Jesus has done and that Jesus has died in their place and their sins are forgiven. That's the content of this gospel. And then it was the word of their testimony, their willingness to proclaim what Jesus had done to the ends of the earth, to say, no, he is my king. No, he has died for me. No, I will follow him. The blood of the lamb and their testimony. But how far were they willing to go for this? To the point of death. That's how far they were willing to go. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. They didn't hold on to their own lives when I'm going to proclaim this even if it means I die. Paul is saying in a world that is at war, if you want to remain in Jesus to the end, if you want to be part of God's family, if you want to see peace in this world, then you need to go to war with the gospel. You need to share it with those who are perishing. Share it with those like you and me who deserve death and judgment and hell. Do you know the whole world is one big long line with people either going one of two directions, to heaven or hell. And the only difference between the people in the queue to hell and the queue to heaven is how we respond to the news of what Jesus has done. And you and I have that news. 
You and I have the words that if we speak the truth of who Jesus is, it can change eternity forever. For not just our friends and family, not just our suburb, not just Auckland, New Zealand, but the whole world. These are the words of eternal life. And they're how God wins the war. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God will win this cosmic battle partly by the beauty of your feet. Proclaiming, like Isaiah speaks about, the news that our God reigns across the mountains to the world around, our God reigns. Oh, I know it's hard. Oh, and I know the lines that we say to ourselves. I don't know what to say. I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. I don't know how I'll be received and my job matters and I need to be respectful to those around me and my family. I don't want to lose friends. I don't want to put my head up and get shot down. I mean, they're the feelings that I have and I'm sure that many of you have got those same feelings. And they're the feelings Satan loves to fan into flames so that you and I don't speak. One of the things I love about Uni Church is just how much we as a church, you, keep talking about sharing the news of Jesus with others. How I hear people inviting their friends along to church to explaining Christianity, how we, we pray through the Connect cards each week and we see week after week people praying for their friends. And if you've been invited here by a friend, I want you to know that they're praying for you to see how amazing Jesus is. That excites me. I get so excited by the way God is working in us in that way. But do not get lazy. Do not pull back. Do not let Satan stop you from doing that. Keep going. It's interesting that the very person who wrote these words at the end of this letter asked the Ephesians to pray for him that he might do exactly that. Look at verse 19. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Do you know where Paul is when he writes this? He's in jail. He is literally in chains. He's not saying, look, I want you to pray that I'd get out of jail. I want you to pray I'd get some nice food. I'd be whipped a bit less or anything like that. He's saying, you know what? Pray I would be bold. Pray I would speak as I ought. Friends, that's a prayer I would love you to be praying for me. I would be bold in the way I speak to my friends and my my neighbors and my family who don't know Jesus. It's a prayer I'd love you to be praying for our connect leaders and our, and our kids' church leaders and our youth leaders. It's a prayer I'd love for us to be praying for ourselves, that we might be bold as ambassadors for Jesus. We might point the world around us to Him. Maybe you could print it out, stick it on your bathroom mirror and have it at some place that you could pray that God might use you to proclaim over the mountains the joy that our God reigns. And remind you not to believe Satan's lies. Keep going. Keep dancing. Keep spreading the news of Jesus. Well, in addition to that, he talks about the shield of faith. Verse 16. In every situation, take up the shield of faith 
with which he can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In the first century, the soldiers would be holding these big shields and that would protect them from the arrows that would come over from the archers of the enemy. And often the archers would dip the arrows in tar and pitch and light them on fire and then shoot them. And they would go over the top, hit the kind of board, and the board would catch on fire and they'd be like, ah, and they kind of put it out. As they were doing that, they'd be like, ah, got in the side. Like someone with a paintball. It still hurts. In the real world... The shield of faith is what protects us from Satan's arrows, his accusations that set our hearts and minds on fire in a bad way, his temptations, his corruptions, his schemes. It's the shield of faith that protects us from that. It's not just saying, oh, I believe. You, know, you just got to have faith like George Michael did, right? But we need to come and trust and rely and depend on what Christ has already done. We're told in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace, which is God's gift. You're saved by God's gift through faith, through trusting in it, depending on it. It's not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Our reliance, our dependence, our trust is in the one who's already faced death for us. What could Satan do? What can he accuse me of that I cannot say paid for in Jesus? You've sinned. You've turned your back on God. Yeah, I have. But Jesus took the price for me. You've not always treated him as you ought. You deserve to go to hell, Rowan. You're right, I do. But Jesus went to hell on the cross for me. In Christ, he has already extinguished the flaming arrows of the accusations of the evil one. So complete is Jesus' forgiveness. So absolute is his reign that no matter what he says, we can entrust our eternity to him. And the fiery darts of the enemy will fizzle out. And the shield of what Jesus has already done will protect us and allow us to keep running forward. Again, if you've not seen that yet, if you've not experienced the amazing reality of the forgiveness of God and the absolute confidence we can have because Jesus paid the price for us, come and talk to me tonight. Come and talk to whoever invited you here. Come and talk. Because life that does not end is on offer. Then we're told, take the helmet of salvation. In the ancient world, the head was the source of all things. Sure, there was a helmet that they, that they wore, but it was the, the source of where things were sustained from. It was what ultimately, the source is what ultimately protects the believer from Satan and his lies. And it's this, that Christ has already saved us. The source, the helmet of salvation is the object of the shield of faith. The shield of faith trusts in that Jesus has already offered us his salvation. We belong to the domain of Christ. We've already received it. We've been protected by the helmet of salvation on our heads. We don't need to succumb to the devil's tricks. We don't need to believe his false ideologies or his moral temptations. Even though we sin, guilt is no longer our burden because we have been saved. Three of my favorite words of Jesus are the words that he said on the cross. As he died, it is finished. Friends, when we're at war, how sweet are those words? Nothing can take us away from Him. And then we get to the last tool, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is not the sword given by the Spirit. All of these gifts here are given by God. Rather, it's the tool made effective by the Spirit of God, that God in His Spirit is giving His Word a cutting edge in the lives of the people around us. As we take that gospel message out to the world around us, as we point to the Word of God, He moves and 
shows people the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. You know, every time Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, do you know what he did? He quoted right back at him scripture, the word of God. The word of God is how God speaks. He, he takes those words on the page and makes them alive in our hearts and lives. And he's given this word to us. It's living and active. I want you to imagine for a moment. At the end of tonight, we're told by that stupid alert system we will get on our phones that we're at war. That all of us need to go home and ready ourselves. You can imagine we run home and we get the pack for war and we're going to go out for whatever it is tomorrow and we kind of get on our boots and we put all our stuff on and we look at the sword that we've been given and we go, no, I don't think I'm going to need that. Like, who would do that? Who would go, you know, I'm just going to go out with all the defensive things and not the offensive one. Who would go out into battle without the sword? It's ludicrous, right? Yet so often we walk out into the world without the Word of God dwelling in our minds, without spending time in the Scriptures, without understanding what God has said. We enter the day and we think, look, I don't have time to think about what God has to say to me today. And you don't have time not to. I'm guilty in this area as anyone. Even though my role is explaining the Scriptures and meeting with people, so often I let the busyness of the day come in. And like, man, I've got heaps to do. You know, I should just look at all the buildings we could potentially get at and, and then I should kind of answer all my emails because these are things that need to happen and we move on and Satan's going, yes, Rowan, stay busy, stay busy. Don't go into the Word of God. Pull back from that. That's right, because God needs it. God needs you to do all that stuff because he can't do it. You move on. Satan's biggest victory in our church will be if we assume we know the Word of God rather than us actually knowing it. Paul warns us here. He warns us all that to protect ourselves from being blindsided by Satan and his cronies. We need to know we're at war. And we need to live as though we're at war. And so he reminds us finally that those who recognize this, that those who trust in Christ, that those that want to stay to the end, verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit. With every prayer and request, stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. He points to the true warrior, the one who is God, the one who can actually do more than we can ever ask or imagine. He points us to be dependent on the true and living God. He said, it's not in our strength we can resist the devil. It's not by our strength that we can conquer the ruler of the, of the air. His time is limited, but his battle is fierce. And he's using every way possible to bring you and me down. And so Paul says, pray in the Spirit. Now, it's not speaking in tongues or doing some fancy prayer. It's saying, pray in line with what the Spirit says. Pray in line with the Word of God. Pray that God will work through His Word and through you to win His battle. Pray to the one who is in control of all things. Pray for one another. The reality, friends, is that we are at war. And Paul tells us to giddy up. Let's go. The only question left for us is will we? Will we live as though we're at war in the world and clothe ourselves with the weapons God has given us? Eternity depends on that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the reality of what is going on that you've shown us. We confess that so often we are 
acting in a way that's totally oblivious to the outside world. Totally oblivious to what Satan is trying to do to lead us astray. But thank you so much that you've spoken into our world and remind us of this reality. Father, would you show us where we're being led astray? Would you show us where we're pushing you aside and walking towards Satan and his plans? Would you help us sit in your word and let your word shape us and mold us by your spirit? Would you... Help us to be ready to share the news of Jesus and to, and to live lives that are different in your world. We pray, Lord, as a church, you would keep us together, caring for one another, looking after one another, recognizing we're at war, that the battle is won, and prayerfully depending on you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.